Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant, but no matter how the action unfolds, DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant dub. They even have great same-game parlays. So many different ways to bet the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball, only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope all of you guys had a great start to your week. The in-season tournament quarterfinals were last night, or at least the first round of them, and they were highly, highly entertaining. We're going to be breaking down both games from the perspective of all four teams. It's going to be a double show day. We're also going to be coming back later tonight to break down Knicks, Bucks, and Lakers Sons. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me if you'd scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT so you guys don't miss any film threads or show announcements. I did a couple of film threads on both games from last night 
this morning. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them at the end of the shows. No mailbag today, but we'll be doing it again later on this week. Also, basketball is back. It's been a long offseason, and if you're like me, you're psyched to be seeing all these pro and college games on TV. And while I love watching basketball on television, there's nothing better than being there live. And the best way to do that is on GameTime, the fastest-growing ticketing app in the United States. GameTime is the only ticketing app that gives you peace of mind with your purchase. They let you see the view from your seat before you buy, so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive, and their all-in prices show you your total upfront. So you always know you're getting a great deal. And it takes no time at all. You can buy your tickets in seconds with just two taps. So take the guesswork out of buying tickets with GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem redeem code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last minute tickets, lowest price Guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. You know, it's funny, just a big picture about the in-season tournament. My takeaway when it first happened was as it pertains to the actual um, as it pertains to the actual tournament itself, I wanted to have a wait and see approach. Meaning, like, let's see what it looks like before we come up with an opinion. However, what I did say is like I did think it was the wrong kind of idea in terms of what's wrong with the regular season. Like, in my opinion, when you have this many back-to-backs in your schedule and you have teams not valuing the regular season the way that you'd hope, and it's leading to stars sitting out games, it hurts the total product so much, in my opinion, that any sort of financial benefit that you have from more games is canceled out by just lower quality games, as teams just don't seem to care as much. And so I've said this many times on the show, I'm a big believer in dropping in the season down to 66 games because it gets rid of back-to-backs, makes it far more likely that stars will play not only from a rest perspective, but also every game is 20% more valuable to the standings at the end of the day. So in the big picture, that's one of the things that I'd like to see them do. However, as it pertains to the in-season tournament itself, I was interested to see how it would actually play out in practice. And We've seen now through the regular season games and through this first round of quarterfinals that it's just making something different happen during this phase of the season. If you really look at the NBA regular season, it basically is like the first two-thirds or so just just go off the same every single week, right? It's October, same thing. November, same thing. December, same thing. January, same thing. First week of February, same thing, right? Then there's like this brief kind of chaotic stretch where it's like, We have the trade deadline, and after the teams make their trades, they play one or two games with their new guys, and then we head into the All-Star break, and now the All-Star break's a little bit longer, so there's that kind of weird stretch there, but then we go into like kind of the ramp up into the playoffs, and the Super Bowl's over, and all the football fans kind of dial into basketball, and it kind of takes off from there, right? But for the first, you know, two-thirds of the season, it gets super repetitive and redundant, and it's a lot of the same stuff, right? And so having something like this where we've played, you know, a little over a fourth of the season and we can just do something different for a week, I really appreciate that. And like even in the month leading up to this when we played the 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 seeding games, those 
Tuesday, Friday, in-season tournament, you know, uh, uh, pool play games actually were pretty entertaining from just adding some differences in the way the games looked in terms of the courts all the way to just the level of intensity that the teams were playing with. It's clear that people want to win this. Did you see the Pacers bench last night? It, like they, Those guys were going absolutely crazy down the stretch of this game. And so I applaud Adam Silver just simply from the perspective of like trying something that like even if it doesn't necessarily fix the big picture issues of the regular season at least gives us something different to kind of break things up because now it's like we go a month or so of regular basketball and then you get kind of breakups with the pool games and then you have this exciting tournament the first week of December then we'll go rest of December January another month month and a half of things kind of settling back down into that that cycle right but then it'll be broke up by the trade deadline and so I think it just kind of breaks up and partitions out the NBA season in a more palatable way. And so I've really enjoyed it so far, and I think it's only going to get better as we head further into this week. So Celtics-Pacers is where we're going to start. Um, I want to start with this third quarter run. So the Celtics were up, I think, seven at halftime, a late run there um, right before the half to kind of build the lead as the Pacers, I think, were up by one with about three, four minutes left. But in that third quarter, Tyrese Halliburton completely takes over. And I, I, did, I put together a full thread of the way he was picking apart the Celtics defense in that third quarter run. So I want you guys to go take a look at that again on my Twitter feed at under, underscore Jason LT. But it started with Buddy Heald's ghost screens. Now, last time we did a, a, a Pacers video, we talked a lot about this specific concept. But it's one of the pet actions that the Pacers run a lot. And it's a very simple concept, right? Like, you're going to put a point of attack type of dude that is going to guard a dribble drive guy on on Tyrese Halliburton and you're probably going to put one of your lesser defenders on Buddy Heald who's going to be more of a lock and trail position right and so a lot of times in those situations if they're not switching it's going to be a hedge and recover situation and Tyrese might be able to get downhill and if they switch you're going to get Tyrese or Buddy Heald operating with a little bit of an advantage because there's always that little kind of lag in between switches there's a specific play where uh, I put it in the film thread where Buddy Heald missed a three on the left wing on a ghost screen where Drew Holiday was originally guarding Tyrese Halliburton and Derek White was guarding Buddy Heald. But as Buddy Heald ran the screen and then slipped it, Drew Holiday was chasing Halliburton this way. And so when Buddy Heald cut across his face, he had to turn to go back. And by the time he turned and recovered, the ball was already in Buddy Heald's shooting pocket and he was elevating into a shot. So it's just a difficult action to guard in general. Now, to start in this third quarter stretch, the Celtics were not switching this action. And so as a result of that, Tyrese kept getting downhill because Drew Holiday, just in that little interchange, kept giving up an angle. And Tyrese is a little bit uh, a little bit qu- uh, faster, a little bit bigger, and he was able to get past him and get downhill. And then from there, they were able to get uh, good stuff out of it. The first one that I wanted to point out, this was a uh, uh, the one where he kind of switched. He jumped up with his right hand into Horford and then switched into his left hand and laid it in. On that play, this was a great example of why it's important to run weak side action. There was a weak side action between, I think, Neesmith and Brown, if I remember correctly. But in that weak side action, Al Horford, actually it was Miles Turner and Bruce Brown. Miles Turner just set a flare screen for Bruce Brown down towards the corner on the weak side of the ball. And as a result, because of that action... Horford's attention is directed in that way, right? Because he's got a coverage for any sort of off-ball screening action, right? So as Tyrese turns the corner coming off of that that ghost screen as he gets around Drew Holiday because the Celtics weren't switching it, which again, I disagree with from a strategy standpoint because we're talking Derek White and Drew Holiday. There's no reason to make Drew Holiday navigate a screen and have to try to beat Tyrese.
Tyrese when he's got that type of advantage when you can just switch it and Derek White's a capable of just as capable of a perimeter defender as Drew Holiday is, right? And then Drew Holiday obviously can handle the Buddy Heald issue, but they weren't switching it, right? So Tyrese gets downhill because Horford's watching that back screen for Bruce Brown. He's a second late to get back to the rim and help, which gives Tyrese the angle to get into his body and then switch into his left hand and then make it, right? And then there was another one on the right side of the court, just a couple possessions later, same sort of thing. Go screen, no switch. Drew's a little out of position. Tyrese gets all the way downhill, engages Jason Tatum and help, drops off a perfect pass to Obi Toppin in the dunker spot who rises up and lays it in, right? So then from there, the Celtics start switching. When they start switching, immediately Tyrese Halliburton catches, uh, it was, I want to say, Derek White in the post on Al Horford, or excuse me, on uh, uh, Miles Turner, and they just dump it into Miles Turner, who quickly just turns and scores right at the basket, right? Then there was a um, uh, there was a, another ball screen on the left side of the floor, where, now this is a, a semi-transition possession, and the, and the Pacers do a lot of this kind of stuff, and I think it's really, really smart, where like they will just... If Tyrese is coming down the floor with pace and he's got that little hop in his step, they'll just run and set that ball screen from somebody way out, like 30, 35 feet from the basket, and it just kind of spreads everything out and makes even more room for him to make those reads. And like Tyrese Halliburton is not like this outstanding vertical pop type of athlete, but he is a very quick lateral athlete. And so when he has that kind of space to change direction and kind of snake through the lane and make reads, he's really, really tough to guard. And so on this particular play, and again, and this one's in that film thread. Obi Toppin, they're, uh, uh, Halliburton's coming up the floor in a semi-transition set up the left side. Topping comes up to set the screen on that left side. And you see Drew Holiday kind of open up to prepare to run over the top of that screen. It's also possible that he was... Uh, um, uh, expecting a different coverage from Horford. I'm not sure exactly what was happening in that possession, but he just quickly cuts back over to the right and Drew's way out of position, gets way downhill. Obi Toppin just pops back to the top. Horford comes over and helps. He just slings it back over his head to Obi Toppin on the left wing. You get the point here. Depending, not it, it didn't matter which coverage it was. It did, like they ran a pick and pop with Miles Turner, just a basic pick and, pick and pop action that the Celtics iced, which means Drew Holiday basically denied him the screen. He just cut uh, back to the left and got downhill, engaged Horford and help. Easy drop off pass to Miles Turner at the top of the key for a wide open three. And like this is like separating process from results is important. Because especially with a team like the Celtics, you can have stretches where they score a shit ton of points taking bad shots because they're that good. That's how much talent they have. But this is what's interesting about watching this Pacers team. Miles Turner's a good offensive player. Not a great offensive player. You know, Obi Toppin is a below average NBA offensive player. Bruce Brown is a very good defensive player, very good athlete. He's not a great offensive player, right? Like it's not like you're he's out there surrounded by tons of offensive talent, but what he's doing is he's setting these guys up with great looks. Like Obi Toppin's not a guy that's going to pick you apart in a half-court set and post-ups and pick-and-rolls and stuff, but if you just get him staying still catch-and-shoot threes, he can knock them down. If you get him wide-open catches underneath the basket in the dunker spot, he can rise up and finish. If you give Miles Turner wide-open catch-and-shoot threes at the top of the key, he can score. 
in the fourth quarter, which we haven't even talked about yet, a big part of it was Aaron Neesmith and his ability to attack closeouts. But what do you have to do to give Aaron Neesmith the ability to attack a closeout? You have to consistently have the defense in rotation, which happens as a result of Tyrese Halliburton and his ability to consistently generate dribble penetration regardless of the coverage that the Celtics employed against him. So then at this point, uh, I want to say in the run, like the, the Pacers had gone up by like three, four, five points in that area. TJ McConnell comes in and there's this brief bench stretch there to end the third quarter where TJ is incredible. He ends up beating Cornette on a switch with his nifty kind of step through move. He has a play and pick and roll where he draws multiple defenders, engages the low man and makes a kick out pass to Ben Matherin in the left corner. And then he had a big steal on the, this entire lineup. This, it was TJ McConnell, Obi Top, and Aaron Neesmith, Buddy Heald, and Ben Matherin. They had an awesome defensive stretch there to end that third quarter. It was rough offense, too, from, uh, from Drew Holiday and from Jalen Brown. By the way, random stat for you Celtics fans. The Celtics have had the second-worst offense in the league in third quarters this season. This has been a pretty consistent uh, theme for them. But a lot of uh, – uh, after TJ McConnell gets a steal and throws it ahead and Buddy Heald ends up getting a dunk, a lot of scoring pop and effective defense from that Pacers unit, and they actually built the lead up a little bit. I thought it was a really, really impressive, you know, a, uh, a stretch from that group to just kind of extend and expand the lead at that point. Then down the stretch, the Celtics predictably, with all the talent they have, they make a little run, turns into a close game down the stretch. And I want to really paint for you guys the, the the difference in the quality of shots that the Pacers were getting. And what I appreciate about it is like, you know, Tyrus Halliburton is a really good scorer. Right, and he hit two massive pull-up threes down the stretch. I want, I want to be clear, but like Tyrese understood that, like in this large sample size of fifteen-ish clutch possessions in the last five, six minutes of the fourth quarter, it's more important just to continually generate quality shots and trust that a certain amount of them are going to go in than any singular possession and trying to punish a specific matchup or whatever it might be. Now, what they went with was guard-to-guard screens. It wasn't always Buddy Heald. A lot of it was Bruce Brown as well. But they were using guard-to-guard screens to get Tyrese Halliburton downhill. In the event of uh, of a switch, he would uh, just attack the switch defender downhill. If they lagged in their switch or didn't make a switch, he'd get downhill out of that. But he was making kickouts to Aaron Neesmith with an advantage. And Aaron Neesmith was just, all fourth quarter, was just ripping through to the right as hard as he could all the way to the rim. There were even a couple plays that weren't closeouts where he did it off the dribble. One where Jalen Brown swatted him out of bounds and another where he drew a foul on it. But like Aaron Neesmith actually was... Uh, uh, producing a lot of the rim pressure that the Pacers were coming up with in that fourth quarter run. And by the way, Neesmith had a had two atta- uh, closeout attacks down the stretch. He had one on the right wing where he kind of did a nice job relocating out of the corner, which created a better angle uh, for him to beat Tatum. Tatum jumped out of his shoes on the pump fake, ripped through, easy floater off the glass. Another one, a kick out to the left corner. Neesmith just racks to the right, right? Gets into Tatum's chest and finishes athletically at the rim. By the way, Aaron Neesmith this year, 62 closeout opportunities. He's converted into 90 points. 90. 1.45 points per possession. And then obviously the two big shots of the game from Tyrese Halliburton. Nasty left-to-right crossover on Drew Holiday into a pull-up three. And then the one against uh, Jalen Brown, which was crazy because he had Horford on a switch. 
And Halliburton's been cooking switches all year long. He's been up over like 1.3 points per ISO, which is insane. And then Buddy Heald has Jalen Brown on him, and Jalen uh, Buddy Heald runs over to set another ghost screen. And I'm like, oh no, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. He's got the right matchup. Don't bring an extra defender into it, which is exactly what happened. Jalen Brown just peels off of Buddy Heald and contests the Tyrese Halliburton pull-up three and actually got a really good contest on it. He just fouled him, right? But Tyrese makes it anyway. Because guess what? A Tyrese Halliburton pull-up three has been worth 1.26 points per possession so far this year. He's been one of the best pull-up jump shooters in the league. We're talking that's over 60% in effective field goal percentage. That's like Steph Curry territory that we're seeing out of Tyrese Halliburton as a pull-up jump shooter. It didn't matter. Even though Buddy Hield made a bizarre decision, he just made the shot anyway. And then the Pacers ended up icing the game with an inbounds play where uh, Buddy Hill came up to the top of the key. Tatum and Drew Holiday kind of miscommunicated on a switch, and Buddy Hill hits a three at the top of the key, and the game is basically over. One thing I want to point out on the defensive end of the floor, uh, there were a couple of switches where they ended up getting Tyrese Halliburton onto Jason Tatum, and Jason Tatum did them favors by settling for jump shots, which we'll get to in a minute. But for the most part, I thought Aaron Neesmith did a really nice job on Jason Tatum, navigating those screening actions and avoiding switches as much as possible. Every single post-up ISO that Jason Tatum had on Aaron Neesmith down the stretch of that game, he forced him into a tough, long, contested two. Not a single time did he get downhill to the rim in an on-ball set. There was that one horn set where he kind of slipped to the basket and drew a foul when he was off-ball. But he did not beat Aaron Neesmith off the dribble a single time down the stretch of that game. It was, again, and I, this is this to me is like what's what's so exciting about this team in the long run. This team so badly needs like an athletic wing defender, right? And Aaron Neesmith, good player, who played a great game last night. But like now just imagine what that would look like if you had a above average starter caliber 3 and D guy on the wing. Right, if you actually had like a like an Herb Jones or Jaden McDaniels type on the wing alongside Tyrese Halliburton, that's what you're seeing there. Is like Aaron Neesmith is providing a version of that for the Pacers, and it brings great value because they have such a, a need of that position type. I've been talking about this with the Lakers fans, like, oh my gosh, look at Max uh, or uh, Max Christie or Cam Reddish, and it's like. Yeah, they're showing you how bad this team needs point-of-attack defense so that these bench-level guys are producing at a high level because that's what the team needs, right? And they're playing alongside a good rim protector, right? That, like, Ideally, you have a better version of that and you get that much more impact out of that position, right? I, I mean, you can even say that the, the Denver Nuggets – upgrading Jeremy Grant into Aaron Gordon, a better version of all of the dirty work things that Jeremy Grant did, pushed them over the top in a lot of ways. And so, again, shout out to Aaron Neesmith. I'm not trying to undercut him, but that, that to me was an interesting look ahead at just how important that specific piece is for the Pacers and a team that struggled defensively and has struggled on the glass throughout this season. Having, like, if you could slot Aaron Neesmith properly as an off-the-bench wing, that could even push you guys to a higher level at that point. In general, I was really impressed by the Pacers defense down the stretch of this game and I think it's a, a a strong indicator of what I said during the Pacers deep dive uh last week they are an awful defensive team and an awful rebounding team and some of it is personnel right Tyrese Halliburton is a really weak point of attack defender Buddy Heald is a really weak point of attack defender Bruce Brown is good but he's not having a great season and then on the back line 
Obi Toppin and Miles Turner. Miles Turner is just running around trying to clean up messes all game long, and Obi Toppin's not the best low man in the world, right? So, like, there's some personnel limitations there. But the Pacers have a lot of speed. They're capable of rotating better. They're capable of defending at the point of attack better. They're capable of doing a better job. And so that's the thing. Do you want to be the Sacramento Kings? Or do you want to be a serious team? And if they play and in, 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 in compete in the dirty work details of the game, the way they did down the stretch against Boston, they do have a chance to make noise in the playoffs. Why? Because Tyrese Halliburton is playing like a top 10 player in the league. That's just the level he's at right now. His pull-up shooting is real. I, had a, we, I was on with the uh, uh, watch playback guys last night. And we were breaking down the game and somebody in the comments asked like, hey, is there any parallels between Tyrese Halliburton and Steph Curry in 2015? And the answer is yes on the offensive end of the floor. But the thing is, is Steph Curry and Clay Thompson were coming off of that 2014 FIBA World Cup where they both engaged on the defensive end of the floor and that Warriors team was the best defense in the league. And Steph and Clay did their part to contribute to that. And so that's the next step is like Tyrese has... Steph Curry 2015 type potential as an offensive creator. He's faster. He's taller. He's showing some similar shooting capability. I I wouldn't put him in the same conversation as Steph. I think that's blasphemy, but he's kind of trending in that direction, you know, like in in a lot of ways. And and he's such a gifted on-ball passer. Like he has the potential to kind of lead to that type of renaissance in Indy. But uh, from the top down, there needs to be a commitment to the defensive end like what you saw in that Celtics game. They can do it. They don't have to be the best defense in the league, but they need to be closer to that 15 mark, right? And it's something that they have the personnel to do, in my opinion. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design icon West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of the two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the Natural Hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Visit lisa.com forward slash hoops to learn more. 
That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash H-O-O-P-S. In sports, the scoreboard doesn't tell the full story, but Netflix does. Stories about dads who happen to be world-class quarterbacks, untold tales of athletes you thought you knew, the heart-racing pressure for the heart, soul, and survival of the multi-billion dollar business of F1, stories about college kids who were given a last chance at redemption, David Beckham's meteoric rise to not only becoming a global soccer phenomenon, but also becoming one of the biggest celebrity couples in pop culture. From upsets to injuries, from comebacks to victories, we get to see it all with Netflix sports. These are the stories that turn us all into fans and give everyone something to cheer for, to feel for, to hold your breath for, and to get up out of your seat for. Whether you're a diehard fan or you're brand new with shows like F1 Drive to Survive, Quarterback, Full Swing, Untold, Beckham, and so many more, Netflix has the stories for every type of fan. Netflix turns us all into fans. On the Celtics front, I have been saying forever, even including this season, that the Celtics could win 40 games in a row, and I would still be skeptical of their ability to win on the biggest stages at the highest level of the NBA playoffs. You'll notice the Celtics are number one, or were number one in my power rankings yesterday, but in my contender list, I've consistently had them behind Denver, regardless of the fact that they've looked better this season. And it's just because time and time again, specifically when they get alpha-dogged by a star, they fail to regain control of a basketball game specifically with offensive execution, right? Yeah, they can beat the Sixers. Why? Because Joel Embiid specifically really struggles in the playoff setting. And James Harden specifically really struggles in the playoff setting. Yeah, you beat Jimmy Butler once. You beat Jimmy Butler once and he still came this close to beating you a pull-up three in game seven that literally would have sent you home. And then the next year he did send you home. And then when you ran into Steph Curry in 2022, he alpha-dogged you guys and he sent you home. This is a consistent problem with this team. Down the stretch of that game, I had Tyrese Halliburton consistently generating great offensive opportunities for lesser offensive players. And then on the other end of the floor, Jason Tatum could not generate quality shots. He made a couple. He made a step-back mid-range jump shot over Aaron Neesmith on a clear side post up on the right side of the floor. He made like a jab-step jumper against Aaron Neesmith, about a 21-footer up on the kind of right elbow extended out, right? He made a couple of tough shots. But where was the, where was the easy shot? Where was the, I'm going to back Aaron Neesmith down, draw a second defender, and make a kickout pass to a high-quality three-point shot? Where was the, he, had, he had Tyrese Halliburton twice on switches. Once with a cleared side and 10 seconds on the shot clock. And he literally stood there and waited for the shot clock to run down and jacked up a jumper. And he missed it. There was another one, Tyrese Halliburton, switch, left wing, this time like 12 seconds on the shot clock. Now, I would have had Jalen Brown clear out the side, but it would have been easy enough to have Jalen Brown just run through to the other side and then Tatum just rip through to the left, turn his back, post up, back down, draw the second defender, make the kickout pass, get a wide open three. Nope. He stood there, dribbled until the shot clock ran out and took a pull up three and he missed it. And by the way, like this is the concern with, with Jason Tatum. One of the things I said before the season is like the positive you know, spin of this situation is Tatum keeps getting better, right? And Tatum made some steps at the end of the Heat series last year, clearing the side, working out of the post. But to start this season, he was posting up more and he was making the threes. 
But his post-up attempts per game has been trending downwards, and now his pull-up jump shot has fallen apart. Do you remember at the beginning part of the season when he was making all his pull-up jump shots? He's now back down to 0.87 points per pull-up jump shot. So a a Tatum pull-up jump shot is objectively a bad shot for this team. It was a bad shot in this regular season so far. It was a bad shot last year in the regular season. He cannot even get more than one point per pull-up jumper, yet it is a consistent part of his shot diet. Meanwhile, he's had success backing down in the post, drawing fouls, getting closer to the rim. And what I need to see is in a big game like last night, when he's getting alpha-dogged by Tyrese Halliburton, when he needs to arrest control of the situation, he can't go generate a quality shot. And that's what's discouraging to me. Because he holds the keys. I've said this to Celtics fans nonstop over the years. It's not about a trade. It's not about bringing another guard in. It's not about, you know, I miss miss uh, a diagnosed the situation after the 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 um after the Warriors series that it wasn't about aggregate ball handling. I was like, oh, they just need to go get another guard. They got Malcolm Brogdon. No, that what's the, that's not the trick. What dawned on me last year is like it just doesn't matter because the ball ends up in Jason Tatum's hands at the end of the day. That's where it ends up. And so it really is up to him. And this was, again, he's going to have a lot more chances, especially as we get close, as we get into the postseason, right? But this was a high leverage game, single elimination, first in season tournament, on the road, tough crowd, top ten player in the league, at least in terms of the level of play he's playing at right now. And Tyrese Halliburton is is taking it to him, and like he can't regain control of the game on the other end of the floor. And again, I'm a big process over results guy. This wasn't it. This wasn't. Uh, oh, the Celtics just missed their open threes. No, that's not what happened. The jumpers they got down the stretch were tough jumpers. Jalen Brown, tough mid-range pull-up over Bruce Brown, missed it. Jalen Brown, tough step-back three out of the left side corner over Al, uh, over uh, Miles Turner, missed it. Jason Tatum, tough fadeaway right shoulder fade that over Aaron Neesmith that he got bailed on out on and drew a foul. Another tough fadeaway over Aaron Neesmith on the left side that he missed. He made a tough one-legged fadeaway out of the right block. He made a tough jab step pull-up jump shot. He may uh, he missed another tough pull-up three-point shot over uh Tyrese Halliburton. There it's not like I can point to oh they did this process thing correctly and generated high quality shots and they just missed them. No, down the stretch of that game, Tyrese Halliburton generated significantly higher shot quality than Jason Tatum over a large sample of like 15, 20 possessions to determine a single elimination game. And so the Pacers won comfortably. It's literally that simple. Like, and here's the thing, Jason, Tyrese Halliburton took two pull-up threes. Why aren't you getting mad at him? Couple things. Tyrese Halliburton's just way better at pull-up threes. A Tyrese Halliburton jump uh, pull-up three or pull-up jump shot is worth about forty percent more than a Jason Tatum pull-up jump shot. So, just from the simple standpoint of shot value, it's much better. And then, secondly, he only took two of them. What, what did he do the rest of the time? Running his pet actions, whether it was ball screens. Uh, uh, like uh, traditional ball screens or ghost screens with with uh, Buddy Heald getting downhill, making kickout passes to guys who had an advantage. It empowers the whole system. Everybody's in a flow. They get better shots. They make them. It's it's that simple. Now, one thing: Can Kristaps Porzingis help the Celtics' issues in late game situations? Because obviously he didn't play last night. Yes, 
but only if they execute properly. So, for instance, like I, I was asked last night on the broadcast, what do you think is the Celtics' pet action? Like the thing they're going to run if they need a bucket. And what I said was Tatum, Derek White, go screen which ended up being primarily what they ran at the end of the game, which was how they got Halliburton switched onto him a few times. Uh, Aaron Neesmith in general did a good job of avoiding those switches, but that was the primary action they ran down the stretch of that game. And they actually did get into some good matchups. Even in the Aaron Neesmith stuff, like Aaron Neesmith is a lesser perimeter defender, a lesser wing defender than the vast majority of the guys that are going to be guarding Tatum in late game situations in the postseason. And so... What I like about the Porzingis piece is he's going to draw big in all likelihood, which means they're not going to switch. They're going to run probably a traditional drop coverage, which is going to allow him to make kickout passes to Porzingis wide open at the top of the key. And that's good. Question is, it, let's say that Tatum identifies that as his advantage. Let's say they're playing the Cavs in a playoff series. And it's like, it's a, uh, it, he knows Jared Allen is going to, in all likelihood, run a drop. And, you know, it's Max Struess on the ball. And he's chasing over the top. And he knows he can consistently get the defense in rotation by just hitting Porzingis at the top of the key in a pick and pop. Will he do it? Will he spam it? Will he go down the floor five times in a row and just draw the second defender and kick, make the, the drop-off pass to Porzingis so that he can extend the advantage or knock down the shot or whatever it is? Will he do that? Because, like, I watched him have... Halliburton, cleared side, plenty of time on the shot clock, and just stand there and do nothing. And so that's the concerning thing to me, is, is it's like something has to click there with Tatum to where, because we've all seen him do it for bursts. We, we saw him just pick on the Sixers down the stretch of Game 7. We saw him in Game 5 and 6 of the Celtics Heat Series last year, clear the side, work methodically, generate quality shots. We know he can do it. But will he do it and do it consistently? That, that, that's the thing that we have to keep an eye on moving forward. And then last note on the Celtics, I was really confused in general by their defensive process in this game. They were really sloppy on their switches and they blew a bunch of them. They got, um, obviously, Buddy Heald's final three-point shot that he made was on a blown switch. They had this weird play where Aaron Neesmith got an easy bucket on a baseline out of bounds because Al Horford like did this wildly aggressive show on a Buddy Heald screen when Buddy Heald was running like 30 feet away from the basket and Aaron Neesmith just slipped it and got a wide-open layup. All of those actions where, uh, where Tyrese Halliburton was getting downhill, a lot of those were coming out of actions the Celtics should have been switching, especially the guard-to-guard actions. Now, I get it. Like Even in switching guard-to-guard actions, it is difficult but I think it's an easier goal than asking Drew Holiday to stay in front of Tyrese Halliburton somehow while he's getting ghost screened, right? And, and, and you know, again, with, with the ghost screen action, more often than not, it just forces the defensive player to open up a little bit as he kind of works his way around. And just that little bit of advantage is all a speed guard like Tyrese Halliburton needs to beat him off the dribble. And so, in general, I didn't think it was their best defensive effort but like the, with the offensive quality of shot they were getting, it didn't matter. They weren't going to win that game. And that to me is the more concerning part. Moving on to Pelicans-Kings. The Kings are 9-4 and four in their last 13 games. And they've beat a bunch of good teams in that span. They beat the Thunder. They beat the Cavs. They went into LA and beat the Lakers. Blew them out. Went into Dallas and blew out the Mavs. Went into Minnesota and blew out the Timberwolves. Then they had that wild... 
20-plus point uh, comeback against Golden State to win on the Malik Monk game winner. They even beat the Nuggets. That was as impressive a nine wins in 13 span as you can find around the league right now. But the four losses, they lost to the Clippers on a back-to-back after the Warriors game, and then three losses to the Pelicans. And it's interesting to me because after last night, obviously the third loss. And it's interesting to me because it's a it's an interesting example of basketball matchups. Because the Pelicans have been a pretty mediocre team. Just lost to the Bulls last. They just lost two games in Utah. They have been pretty mediocre, right? They're 12 and 10 this year. Uh, they've had the CJ McCollum injury, but there's a case to be made that they've been better without him just in terms of overall point of attack defense with Dyson Daniels in the starting lineup, right? And what's interesting to me is like that is how does a team that's that mediocre have the number of a Kings team that's dominated most of the good teams in the league? And to me, that's where it, this is why I always talk about basketball being more art than science. This is why you could never just assign a single catch all metric to quantify the abilities of a basketball player. Matchups matter. The specific reason why the Kings struggle so much against the Pelicans is they have the specific type of defensive personnel to bother them at all three levels of their offense. So like it starts with the point of attack guys, whether it's Herb Jones or it's Dyson Daniels or it's Najee Marshall or it's Jose Alvarado. It is just a steady diet of outstanding point of attack defenders on Malik Monk and Darren Fox. Then Even if you do get switches, guys like Brandon Ingram and Trey Murphy are not slouches in that area. They've got the length and athleticism to at least do a decent job. I even thought CJ McCollum did a really good job on the ball in this game. Had several deflections. He was locked in. And and, and with with how high they bring Jonas Valanciunas up in their drop, it's a doable job. And again, this is uh, is what I meant when I'm talking about all three levels. Because then you end up with this backside situation where it's, Brandon Ingram or Zion Williamson or Trey Murphy, usually two of those three guys in any given possession. So I've got 6'9 athlete with long arms. I've got Zion Williamson, one of the most freaky athletes in the NBA right now. And I've got Trey Murphy, uh, Trey Murphy, a 6'8, 6'9 long armed freak athlete that are on the backside. And so those guys are just blowing plays up. Zion Williamson, once again, two possessions that he blew up as a low man. He reached in and, and ripped uh, Keegan Murray on on a on a play where he was coming out of the the low man spot there in the uh, out of the left corner. He had that play where I think it was I'm trying to remember who was fronting, but they um, uh, there was that play where you saw uh, uh, Sabonis get the deep seal in transition, and I want to say it was some it was one of the one of the Pelicans. Um, uh, guards, I think that was fronting the post, and Zion's way up on the left wing, and Fox or Monk or whoever it is throws the over the top pass to Sabonis, and it looks like the sides cleared behind him. Zion just comes flying in from the wing and just snatches the basketball out from over the top, and like that to me is what makes that defense so exciting. Is it's like like Zion has that kind of potential. He's got the anticipation, he's got the instincts, he's got the athleticism. Brandon Ingram and, and, and Trey Murphy bring that same type of disruption. And so when you've got that athleticism on the weak side and you've got that sort of point of attack personnel, you can afford to bring Jonas up in ball screens. This is the Denver Nuggets thing. Everybody's wondering, how is it the Denver, the Denver Nuggets are getting stops when they have a weak rim protector? 
And it's literally because they can do whatever they want with Jokic. They can drop him deep. They can drop him up at the level of the screen. It doesn't matter because Contavious Caldwell-Pope is getting over the top of that screen and he's applying back pressure. Christian Brown is getting over the top of that screen and he's applying back pressure, right? And then on the weak side, athletes like Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon are blowing actions up by anticipating and using their length and athleticism. And it has allowed them to not need Jonas Valanciunas to clean up all the messes. It's allowed the Nuggets to not need Nikola Jokic to clean up all the messes. And, and th- that's what's kind of interesting to me about modern defense. is like you kind of have to be strong in two of your cores, right? One of the things – like the Lakers have been one of the best defenses in the league over the last you know month or so. They've been top five. And a big part of that is they have outstanding rim protection – and their help defense has been good. They've been they like the point of attack has been a little bit of a mess. Austin's a little rough. Delo's a little rough. You've been been getting stretches out of Max and Cam, but it's been a little rough, right? But the the weak side, the 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 Rui Hachimura, the LeBron James, the Christian Wood, the the weak side help and the and the and the rim protection of Anthony Davis has allowed them to be a great defense despite having below average point of attack personnel. And that's what's exciting about Jared Vanderbilt coming back is they could potentially then take a leap up to the next level from there. But I think it's an interesting example of that. Like, mm-hmm. if you can, you if you have strong point of attack personnel and strong help personnel, you can get away with the weak rim protector. If you have, you know, like if you're excellent at the point of attack and you're excellent in rim protection, you don't even need to send a third defender into ball screens. And so now your weak side defense isn't as important. You guys kind of get the point. I think it's an interesting example of that. But this defense has given the uh, the uh, the uh, Kings in particular a lot of issues. To give you an idea, in the three games against the Pelicans, Darren Fox, who by the way has been playing like an MVP against everyone else, 23 points per game, 40% from the field, 19% from three, and more turnovers than assists in three games. Malik Monk, three games versus the Pels, 13 points per game, 36% from the field, 38% from three. They've consistently given this team issues. And then on the other end, I, I mean, I thought the Kings did a better job swarming Zion, swarming Zion Williamson in this game, keeping him under control. In the first two losses, Zion Williamson just sliced and diced him. But this time, Brandon Ingram just completely picked them apart. 30 points, six assists. Kings got within five, and then Brandon just took the game over. He hit like this really nice jab step pull-up jumper going left over Keegan Murray. Then he had this ball screen where he drew a second defender, uh, Sabonis, up to the level of the screen. And it's actually this really cool possession where Jonas rolls and Harrison Barnes comes over and stands right under the basket and basically like takes away that easy roll pass. And Brandon, like Jonas gives him a window that's kind of out to the side. And Brandon throws a beautiful pass that hits Jonas in that side so that he can just quick turn and shoot the hook shot over Harrison Barnes, who has no chance of blocking the hook shot. He t- uh, catches it and makes it. I thought it was a really nice play from Brandon Ingram to get a high quality shot out of a good defensive possession from Sacramento. And then it ended with a uh, just a simple double team. Brandon Iso out of the right wing gets downhill, gets down to kind of like the dunker spot area, draws a second defender, makes a kickout pass, hockey assist. Trey Murphy on the left wing knocks down the three, and the game is over. But like it was just methodical, beautiful shot creation from Brandon Ingram with excellent defense on the other end of the floor, closing things out. A couple of guys I want to shout out. Herb Jones, he had, uh, Herb Jones, I should say, had 20. I'm trying to work on pronouncing names correctly, so please keep correcting me when I when I mess that up. Uh, Herb Jones had 23 points, 
had a huge offensive rebound after the Kings. Malik Monk goes down, hits a pull-up three, gets it to five. And then the Kings have a great defensive possession and force C.J. McCollum into a tough step-back jump shot that he misses. But Herb, jo- Herb Jones is just completely unboxed out underneath the basket, gets an offensive rebound put back, which is a lot of that's on the Kings, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then uh, he's uh, – we talked about this when we covered a Pelicans game a, a week or two ago, but he's doing a lot of work putting the ball on the floor. He had a, a, a couple of huge uh, possessions putting the ball on the floor in this game. He converted nine spotted possessions in this game into 13 points. And I think that that's just, again, with a, a, when you have that specific skill set that he has, which is he's an outstanding perimeter defender, right? When you have that, if you can be a not just a guy who can knock down a three, but also be a dribble, shoot, and pass guy, if you can actually be a connective piece in a drive and kick system, that just pushes your value that much higher. And that, you know, that's the difference. Like, uh, like Herb Jones, if he can get on that Jaden McDaniels track where he's got a little bit more of that off the dribble pop, it can just push him up to that next level and raise the ceiling of this team. And then lastly, I wanted to shout out Trey Murphy. I've been shouting out this type of guy around the league a lot lately. It's this, you know, whether it's Sam Hauser, it's Duncan Robinson, or it's Michael Porter Jr., but like the taller spot up guy on the weak side has a, has a little bit of off the dribble pop. And is hyper-aggressive in catch-and-shoot situations even when he's not really open. I think that brings a ton of value. Trey Murphy this season's 5-for-11 on guarded catch-and-shoot threes, which is a huge asset. Like he, he hit a couple of them in this game where it's like the guy's there and it just doesn't matter. And, and I think that having Trey Murphy back has been a lot. This, this, team, this team has potential to be really, really great with the defensive personnel that they have if they can continue to get high-level shot creation out of Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. On the Kings front, I don't want to like I don't want to overdo it because I think some of this is in their head. Uh, like there were some good looks down the stretch of that game that they missed, some good catch and shoot threes that they missed. Sabonis like smoked a lefty hook right at the rim that he shot way long off the back of the rim that would have cut it to like four, I think, uh, uh, down the stretch. So I think some of it's in their head. They were sloppy on the glass. Like the Kings have been the the best defensive rebounding team in the league over the last month, and they just had a bunch of of mistakes on the glass in this game. They gave up thirteen offensive rebounds. So like I don't want to overthink it, but I think. One of the things you'll see happen in basketball is, especially with a bad matchup, a team will struggle with some of the mental elements of it. And you almost just kind of like need to get the monkey off your back, right? You need to get a big win against this team just to kind of reset your confidence. And I'm not, uh, now that they've played three times, I would assume, I would assume because they're both in the West, they'll play at least one more time this year. But I think, especially because you don't want to, you don't want to run into a playoff series with that problem if they were to catch each other in a matchup. And so I think it's important for the Kings to notch a win against the Pelicans at some point this season. All right, guys, that's all I have for this part of today. We're going to be back later tonight for a breakdown of the Knicks, Bucks, as well as the Suns and the Lakers. I will see you guys then. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. 
So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, Wait, did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.